Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. My guest today is Lucy Lang, the New York State Inspector General. The Inspector General of New York, or the IG, is responsible for being an independent watchdog in state government focused on preventing and rooting out corruption, fraud, misconduct, and abuse in state government agencies, as well as other entities related to state government, major infrastructure projects, and more, with a mandated focus on several specific areas of state government as well. The New York State offices of the Inspector General actually includes three offices and some recently expanded responsibilities. The State Inspector General, oversight of fraud, corruption, and state executive agencies and major infrastructure projects. Then there's the Welfare Fraud Inspector General, focused on integrity of the state's welfare system, and the Workers' Compensation Inspector General, focused on the integrity of the workers' compensation system. Also, over the last few years, oversight of gaming has moved into the state Inspector General office, so the Inspector General now has sort of subsumed the Inspector General over gaming, otherwise known as gambling in many instances, in New York State. The Inspector General is per its office, quote, entrusted with the responsibility of ensuring that New York state government, its employees, and those who work with the state meet the highest standards of honesty, accountability, and efficiency, end quote. The office gets a lot of complaints and tips, some through its hotline at 1-800-DO-RIGHT. Uh, Inspector General Lang has said it gets about 6,000 complaints annually, and that's actually increased in recent years in part because Inspector General Lang has been getting out into uh, public more and has a robust plan for how to uh, solicit those issues from the public and make sure that state employees and many others across the state know that the Inspector General is there if they want to send a complaint or tip in. Those tips and complaints take many different forms, as do the results, ranging from nothing <laughs> coming of them to broader systemic investigations, reports, uh, letters to agencies, uh, referrals for other law enforcement investigations, which can lead, of course, to arrests and other uh, consequences. Uh, Inspector General Lang has also undertaken a variety of transparency initiatives with the office over her roughly two years in the job, including the initiative of making all of the letters that the Inspector General's office sends to state agencies public for the first time, uh, part of those broader transparency and sort of public uh, relations efforts, including making sure that the office is getting out there more for more New Yorkers to know that it is there as a resource. Uh, Inspector General Lucy Lang has said that she believes the job of the IG is to put a bigger and brighter spotlight on state government and make sure that the public and state government employees know that the Inspector General's office has very wide reach and is there as a watchdog and resource. Like many government watchdogs, the Inspector General has a series of mandated responsibilities, but also significant leeway for the office holder and appointee of the governor to put their own stamp 
on the work. Inspector General Lang has made prison oversight a major focus of the office, for example, more on that and much more with her shortly. There are also, of course, circumstantial issues that come up for any inspector general. So in this case, for Inspector General Lang, uh, COVID fraud, COVID-related fraud related to unemployment benefits or a number of other COVID-related programs. The New York State Inspector General is appointed by the governor, as I said, though they can't easily be removed by the governor. Their term extends until the end of the governor's term. Governor Kathy Hochul, soon after ascending to that position, after Governor Andrew Cuomo's resignation in 2021, named Lucy Lang as the state inspector general in October of that year. And Lucy Lang began her tenure as IG in November 2021. So she's a little over two years in that role. The office is about to put out its uh, latest annual report that will actually sum up a lot of what the office has been doing over these last uh, two plus years. So we'll discuss a little bit of what's going to be in that report and much more broadly how Inspector General Lucy Lang has been approaching the office, areas of focus, including gaming oversight, which is a growing industry in New York. Also, how she has approached ensuring independence from the governor, which has been an issue uh, in the past for past inspector generals and governors. Lucy Lang joins me shortly. Max Politics is coming to you from New York Law School, where I'm executive editor and program director at the Center for New York City Law. We are producing not only the podcast here, but we have lots of in-person events, and we're going to increase those offerings. And we have upcoming events here at the Center for New York City Law at New York Law School. We're speaking here on Wednesday, February 14th, uh, on the morning of February 15th. So it's uh, if you're listening to this right away when it gets posted, you might still have time to join us on the morning of February 15th. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander is appearing at a city law breakfast at New York Law School. Then uh, two upcoming events on the calendar already. On the evening of February 28th, we have an event on NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, with Arvind Sohoni, the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at NYCHA speaking about the history of NYCHA and current programs to revitalize public housing in New York. So you can join us on the evening of February 28th for that. Then on the morning of March 5th, there will be a city law breakfast with the president of Con Edison of New York, discussing the en energy transition and New York's clean energy future. So you could join us for one or both of those two upcoming events. Also, Comptroller Lander, as I mentioned, on the morning of the 15th, you can find RSVP information at citylandnyc.org. Here on Max Politics, we've had some great recent conversations, including the two most recent ones I'll mention. Just was joined recently by State Senator John Liu. He's the chair of the New York City Education Committee in the State Senate and a Queens Democrat. We talked a lot about the upcoming decision that the legislature and governor will be making about potentially extending mayoral control of New York City schools, which is set to expire in June yet again. We talked a lot about that and a variety of other issues. So check out that conversation. And then just prior to that, I had a really good talk with New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vassen, uh, about his warnings about the negative impacts of social media on youth, what the city is doing about it, and also a variety of other topics as we record here on February 14th, actually, Mayor Eric Adams has just announced that the city has filed a lawsuit against five major social media platforms uh, for their negative impact on youth mental health. 
And Dr. Ashwin Bassan actually previewed that action as part of the more broad public health playbook that he said the city was starting to institute and implement uh, related to this youth mental health crisis and uh, the impacts of social media. So you should definitely check out that conversation with the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Bassan. Uh, after you listen to this one, of course, with New York State Inspector General Lucy Lang, and there's a whole bunch of other good recent uh, conversations that we've had here on the podcast in the Max Politics feed. So check any and all of them out after you listen to this one. All right, let's bring on Lucy Lang, the New York State Inspector General charged with ensuring that New York State government, its employees, and those who work with the state meet the highest standards of honesty, accountability, and efficiency. A very big charge and mandate. The Inspector General has jurisdiction over all executive branch agencies, departments, divisions, officers, boards, commissions, over most public authorities and public benefit corporations, has jurisdiction over a variety of state-funded infrastructure investments and projects, and a whole lot more, uh, a lot that the Inspector General provides procurement and contract management monitoring on certain things, investigates allegations of fraud, abuse, conflict of interest, and more. Inspector General Lang is just over two years into her tenure and here to share what her office has been doing, how it's working to improve integrity in New York state government. Inspector General Lucy Lang, thank you for being here. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm terrific. Good, good, good. Uh, thanks for taking the time. So, I've gone over a bunch of it in the introduction, but broadly speaking, how do you characterize for people the mission of the office uh, offices of the New York State Inspector General? And also, if you want to add on to that, ways in which you've taken a particular focus to certain uh, modernization of the office and specific areas of oversight. I approach the job as one in which I have the privilege of making sure that the most vulnerable New Yorkers have a voice in holding government accountable to work for them. So that means oversight over agencies, including the Department of Corrections, the Office of Children and Family Services, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and so many others. It also includes the Office of the Welfare Fraud Inspector General and investigations into welfare fraud and workers' compensation fraud. So it is really a very broad mandate, but it does give us the opportunity to work with New Yorkers from across the state who are touched by the assets that the state brings to bear in supporting them. And you've had a focus on, as I said, modernizing the office, uh, trying to get the office out in public a bit more, doing a lot more interviews like this with the media. Say a little bit about a few of the ways in which you've tried to modernize and update the offices of Inspector General of the state of New York. There was a great article in The Atlantic by former Department of Defense Inspector General Glenn Fine called the most important public servants you've never heard of. And that has really stayed with me since I took the job and I have tried to do all I can to rectify that, to make sure that folks understand that there is an inspector general who is watching and who is listening. And to that end, we have totally overhauled the technological systems of the office. We have um, created outward facing um, training opportunities both within government and in communities. And we've expanded onto all social media platforms, both so that we can tell people about what we're doing to make sure their taxpayer dollars are well spent, and so that we can take in complaints when folks see that they aren't. Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of taking in complaints, how do you think about sort of balancing what, you know, some people might consider really marginal, uh, really sort of maybe subjective issues where, I don't know, you know, in, in sort of, let's say, you know, uh, unemployment insurance or welfare or something along these lines, somebody, you know, is sort of blurring a line, but is, you know, a very needy person or maybe made, you know, certain mistakes on things, but very marginal cases of someone who is among the group you mentioned, sort of the most vulnerable versus more systemic issues, organized fraud, things. How do you balance that? Because I imagine you must get a number of complaints that are sort of, uh, you know, people alleging things about certain specific individuals that might be in that sort of first bucket of things that many people would consider not worth the sort of state's time and energy and efforts investigating. First and foremost, Ben, my colleagues and I here at the offices of the Inspector General are public servants. So we view everything through the lens of how we can best serve. So we get plenty of complaints in that are either without merit or that belong in another agency. For example, they may be related to a complaint um, based here in the city or a city agency, in which case we have counterparts of the Department of Investigations. But because we are public servants first and foremost, we have made sure that all of our frontline staff are trained in trauma-informed best practices and have avenues to direct people who are struggling, whether it is to the appropriate agency, if it's an investigative matter, or if it is to resources or other opportunities to make sure that their concern is addressed. So even when a case is not rightly under the jurisdiction of this office, we take those complaints very seriously and make sure that they are addressed. With respect to determining what warrants a deep investigation or investment of state resources, we use the touchstone, the greedy, not the needy. So we look to systemic issues, issues of major fraud, issues that shock the conscience, um, issues where there is abuse or danger to members of the public, and issues that jeopardize the perception of government integrity. And those are really a priority over someone who may be suffering and, uh, and as a result makes a poor decision. Say a little bit about the structure of your office, number of employees, how you sort of manage it from that standpoint, because just reviewing what your office does and the mandate, which I you know read in different ways in the introduction, it, it's immense uh, to be able to be monitoring so much of state government and its related entities and contracting and infrastructure projects. Um, but not only monitoring for illegality, but also around just efficiency. I mean, th this is a really broad mandate. So, uh, you know, how do you sort of manage the the focus of it? And you you clearly have certain things that are mandated focus areas uh, that you mentioned some of. And then there's a lot of discretion. So, say a little bit about sort of the personnel and the and the focus and the ways that you sort of manage the the office and its doings. The cases that come across our desks are as varied as New Yorkers themselves. So they are very different depending on what region they come from and sort of which area of the house they ultimately land in. So uh, in, in areas where there are, say, major infrastructure projects under development, we may have a targeted interdisciplinary team where they are looking at uh, the various things related to 
uh, procurement and contracting with the state. In very populous areas where there are lots of state employees, we may be looking carefully at uh, time and abuse type, uh, time and attendance abuse type issues where there are you know, vast numbers of, of state staff. So it really depends, uh, honestly. And, and that's one reason that we rely very heavily on data, which our new systems have allowed us to do so that we are carefully tracking where complaints come in and making sure that we're directing resources when we see the, uh, the gravitational pull of a particular area or issue. But then, of course, there are areas that are of particular interest to me because of my background and experiences. And One of those is the State Department of Corrections, because as you know, I spent a number of years teaching in New York State's prisons and am very committed to ensuring that the state prison system is uh, taking seriously the voices of incarcerated New Yorkers and their families. And to that end, I visited every prison in the state and met with administrators, corrections officers, and incarcerated people in every single one of them um, to identify ways that we can help the Department of Corrections uh, better serve New Yorkers in need. To that end, maybe maybe with that as one example, but say a little bit about how you think about success for the, this office. Um, you have many attorneys, investigators, you take complaints. I imagine you also look into things that you don't necessarily have a specific complaint around, but there's more sort of broad systemic issues or maybe something in the press. Um, But how do you think about sort of success? Um, Is it trying to figure out new ways and systems of doing things that prevent abuse and corruption in the first place? And some of that can be hard to measure on that back end, but you know you're trying to up the um, the proactive steps. Uh, and then there's obviously the uh, changes at agencies that you might uh, uh, produce by some of your letters and reports and investigations. There's arrests, there's referrals. Uh, say a little bit about how you think about success of the office and how you measure. There are kind of micro barometers of success and macro barometers of success. So on the micro level, I think about something like the investigation that we did into urinalysis testing in the Department of Corrections, in which the vendor that the department was using to test people for whether or not they had used narcotics was um, giving false positives. And people were being penalized by everything ranging from uh, being denied parole to being sent to solitary confinement for having false positive urine tests. And when we discovered that, the Department of Corrections uh, immediately terminated that contract. They um, they um, fixed all of those disciplinary records. Of course, you can never give someone back the time that they spent in solitary. But what I consider a tremendous success in that is that the department stopped using solitary as any kind of punishment for a positive Uh, urine test, which I consider to be a a tremendous victory. Now, of course, you can never measure the absence of something. So um, we don't know when when it is that our simple presence is deterring people from committing fraud and corruption. But uh, what we do know is that we are getting increasing numbers of complaints over time. And to my mind, that bears out that the strategy we've undertaken to educate New Yorkers about the fact that we're here and to instill people with 
trust in government, enough trust in government to reach out and voice their complaints and concerns is working. Mm. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing where you are, you know, it's one of these cases where you're coming in, you're making the office more present, you're trying to encourage more complaints if people see something that can then signal to people if you're getting more complaints that there's more, you know, malfeasance going on. But then you might say, well, actually, we're just being more present and encouraging people to make these complaints. Um, you know, it's, That's my working theory, then. Yeah, well, right. Um, and then maybe then you come through the other side where people know you're more present, you're getting more complaints, you're investigating them, you're showing some of the consequences, and, and hopefully that curve maybe bends back the other way, right? I mean, that's more of a longer term thing, perhaps. Well, and, and I will add, since you're now sitting at a law school, that another area that I am thinking long term about measuring our success is uh, encouraging young people to enter the profession of oversight. As you know, I spent many years as a prosecutor and um, was a prosecutor during a time when many young lawyers pursued that path. And I think that this is a really interesting moment in America's political history because there is much more visibility into government than there has been in the past. And I think much more, um, and rightly so, skepticism about government. So for people who are, um, who, who are, uh, uh, thoughtful investigators and who care about making sure that the rules are followed and who are committed to governmental institutions, a career in oversight is really uh, an impactful way to make a path as an attorney. So I'd encourage all the young people and in the law school to, to look into inspectors general paths, but also to young auditors, uh, administrative professionals and investigators. What is um maybe maybe you have a couple examples, you know, on the smaller scale, you've already given a couple of those sort of bigger examples, but what what are some ways where you say to those very people and those, you know, attorneys who want to go into uh, work improving government in some way? Um, some of the sort of regular basic work of the office, um, you one transparency measure that you undertook that is also aimed, at increasing sort of accountability and producing change is publishing um, letters, sometimes with you know redacted information, but some uh, of the letters that you send to state agencies about particular investigations and particular matters. That you know, reviewing a, a you know a sampling of those before this conversation, you know, struck me as a wide range of different things that, again, uh, get at the the very nature of what you said about the wide range of complaints that you get in. Um, but maybe there's a couple of favorite examples you have of these areas where, um, you know, you can point to people who want to go into government to help make change, improve government, areas where um, even on a smaller scale, some of these matters have been sort of ha have been able to lead to some sort of change in government in your still relatively short tenure there. We saw a real uptick in unemployment insurance fraud because of the COVID relief funds and had uh, an interesting example out of our capital region office in which uh, we were monitoring some identity theft that had occurred um, in which uh, folks were using um, personal identifying information of people who should have been able to receive uh, 
unemployment insurance benefits, and these uh, wrongdoers were diverting those resources to themselves. And uh, what we had identified someone, and one of my investigators was, I actually was, I think, on their way home from work and spotted someone at a gas station who was a uh, was a suspect in that case uh, and, and driving a Maserati. And so my investigator colleague ended up tailing that person and uh, conducting surveillance and finding uh, finding his way to a um, to a storage facility. And it turned out that many of the proceeds of this identity theft associated with COVID relief were actually in that storage uh, storage facility. So there can be some very exciting times, even when you think that uh, that most of our cases are, are largely paper cases. Um, and there are all kinds of examples like that where uh, being in the field really makes a difference. So I would say that it is also really importantly not a desk job. You know, a lot of obviously your work is getting at sort of integrity and and making sure that programs um, are are run the way they're supposed to run, and that money's not being lost to fraudsters, and uh, or that uh, you know public. Um, employees are not abusing their positions and all of this. I wonder what your thoughts are sort of zooming out. I, you know, I have a lot of these conversations with elected and appointed officials at the state and city level, some at the federal level. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of sort of discussion to be had about um, just sort of how government is broadly run and systems of accountability. So that again, in many cases, the inspector general of the state of New York is not needed in so many instances, but there are more and better systems in place to increase integrity, increase accountability. Are there any patterns you've noticed now in this position for a couple of years? Are there any broader suggestions that you have for, let's just keep it at the state level for the executive branch, let's say, um, any thoughts on those sort of broader systems of accountability and integrity to help make, make, you know, lighten the load on the inspector general offices? As many offices are building towards the future, they are like us thinking about making major technological overhauls. And all of those changes should be with an eye towards public transparency wherever possible, in my view. Our work has included not just the publication of letters as we've written them, as you described, but also of the past uh, more than a decade's worth of letters that preceded my appointment. We also have started to publish monthly an open data portal that lists what kinds of complaints are coming in, what agencies they're against, et cetera, so that uh, academics and researchers and journalists and interested members of the public can review that and see what it is we're up to. So we are really working to encourage other agencies to similarly undertake um, transparency initiatives so that we can show our work because the public is right to hold us accountable to do what we've been tasked with doing. Mm -hmm. Some of the areas that you have at least some oversight over that repeatedly, you know, come up in sort of like co corruption scandals and things like that include infrastructure and economic development projects and, and contracting, um, you know, sort of spending of discretionary funds in local communities, uh, you know, where elected officials get to give out you know, a bunch of, uh, quote unquote, you know, pork spending um, in those areas. What can and should 
be done differently or better or or what is your office most focused on in monitoring all in that sort of broad bucket of infrastructure and economic development and contracting um you know it's it's it, maybe this isn't where you want to go with some of the answer but you know there's there's some people who have raised the issue some elected officials especially raised the issue that we've actually even though new york state has a pretty sizable government and obviously a massive budget that too much um, that government is doing at the state level, at the New York City level, other places, the MTA, et cetera, is contracted out and sort of not only ripe for um, waste, but also abuse. Um, so what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on sort of that bigger bucket that you also have some oversight over? An area where we had great success was in the oversight of the Mario and Cuomo Bridge project. And that was a project in which our team was boots on the ground from the earliest days of the development of the project. So overseeing the contracting, working with the monitors to make sure that the procurement was happening appropriately and building relationships on the ground with people who were doing the actual building, because it really is, um, it's an, we're, we're an investigative agency and you can't investigate without hearing from the people who are closest to the areas of potential problems. So there were any number of areas where we're able to spot issues before they become either incredibly costly or even life-threatening. And this was, there were issues around sort of like bolt tightening and questions around whether there was the, there was sort of the integrity of the, of the building On of the any major then, project. Yeah. It's important that there be, you know, second, third, fourth sets of eyes, ensuring that everything is done absolutely appropriately when you're talking about the scale of some of the kinds of projects the state has undertaken recently and will continue to undertake. You mentioned the Cuomo name. Let me ask you, um, since that came up, I have other questions about sort of uh, economic development and infrastructure. But um, and that was that bridge project was obviously a project of Andrew Cuomo as governor. Um, the the Office of Inspector General and a number of other sort of watchdog entities. There have been real questions about independence under prior administrations, both Inspector General other entities in state government and the governor's office. Was there anything you needed to do coming in as the first uh, inspector general appointed by a new governor, Kathy Hochul, um, to change any of that culture? Were there things that you needed to say to the governor or say to members of the executive branch about the independence of your office? How have you tried to sort of clarify and brighten any of those lines as, you, as you've thought about it? Um, were there particular conversations even in the sort of initial vetting process that you had with the governor that, you know, you can share broadly sort of your thinking on that? I'm not asking you to divulge. Of course. No, I'm, I'm proud to but, share that yeah. when I was ahead, first please. approached about being inspector general, I said I will only do it if I can be a truly independent inspector general. And I was met with, well, we wouldn't have it any other way. And that has really been true. So one of the safeguards that we put in place that distinguishes my administration from many in the past is that I don't sit as a member of the governor's cabinet. So although I have 
working relationships with my colleagues who are commissioners in the agencies I oversee. I don't sit in on regular meetings with them. I am not part of the uh, the sort of internal infrastructure of the executive chamber, and that is very much by design. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the relationship between your office and the legislature? Is there anything? Is there anything much there? Is there anything that should be there? Are there ways in which you thought about the inspector general having more of a legislative agenda that could help improve some systemic issues? Or is it that you do your work and you expect legislators to sort of notice it and then they can craft, you know, bills at their discretion or change how they approach the budget, depending on some of the things we might have discussed or other things? What about the relationship with the legislature and the notion of sort of policy solutions or a policy agenda from your office to improve, uh, you know, some of these systemic issues? It's vital to checks and balances that I operate separate and apart from the legislature, but I hope that I will always be considered a resource to the legislature and that our work can help provide the foundation for efforts the legislature is undertaking towards improvement. So we sit in on hearings where we think there's something that we can learn. We are happy for our work to be called upon, to be used as as bills are under consideration. And I am also always happy to have conversations with legislators, but I think it's very important that I respect the line and that I not be in the business of lawmaking. Mm -hmm. Are there other entities that you work most closely with? There's obviously the attorney general's office, the controller's office. Um, there's a new uh, uh, oversight agency of ethics and lobbying called the, the New York State Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government. Um, have you had you ha- have you had ways in which you've needed to work with these other offices? Are there ways in which more collaboration could be uh, helpful in terms of preventing or you know rooting out some of the issues that you focus on? We have outstanding working relationships with all of the agencies you've described. And what I would add is that we also have great relationships and are increasing our our relationships with local prosecutors and federal prosecutors because we, um, in cases where we do uncover criminal wrongdoing, we rely on prosecutorial partners to make those cases. So very often we'll handle an investigation and then hand it off to the U.S. Attorney's Office or a local DA, or we will work with them in building a case uh, towards a grand jury stage, et cetera. But ultimately, those matters get prosecuted by prosecutorial partners. Mm-hmm. Is... um. Going back to a couple couple issues we've sort of touched on, this um, this broader sort of uh, there was just a agreement um, between the Department of Justice and the executive branch in New York that was sort of part of the fallout from the uh, Andrew Cuomo administration uh, scandals related to a culture of of sexual harassment. Is is some of what happened there, something that an inspector general's office should have been more aware of? Is it more that it takes more of a complaint to really look into that type of thing? Or did did you sort of follow any of the ways in which, you know, some of that sort of unfolded and anything we can learn from that about how your office under your leadership could approach that type of thing differently in terms of any, you know, sort of problematic cultures or systemic issues within the executive branch? 
know, as a, a former prosecutor who's handled many cases of gender-based violence, I am uh, deeply committed to maintaining a workplace that is free from sexual harassment or any kind of discrimination. That said, there are state agencies that are tasked with um, investigations into and and um, administration of discipline for sexual harassment and related things. So we don't serve in the state's HR function, for example. And when we receive complaints and of that nature, we track them and monitor them. We look for patterns, uh, but we ultimately uh, those go to in house to the state um, to the state office of employee relations. Mm-hmm. Um, let's. Uh... Let's talk about this expanded purview uh, that that basically happened right before you came in related to gaming and gambling in, in the state. And that was happening, uh, th- those responsibilities being shifted to the state inspector general's uh, offices um, as part of or, or right as the uh, mobile uh, gambling was being legalized in New York and, you know, taking off and is has wound up being, you know, a, a pretty big tax windfall for the state. Um What's going on with your office's work overseeing uh, gaming and gambling in New York that also includes horse racing and, you know, all, all, a variety of, of aspects of gaming and gambling? And now um, we're in the process right now of seeing potentially three full casino licenses being awarded in the downstate region. Um, so maybe maybe let's put that one aside because I want to come back to that in a second. But how has your office sort of adapted to this gaming oversight role and what sort of uh, new policies or approaches have you put in place to make sure there's not uh, issues around fraud and abuse and corruption in, in gaming in New York? So this is a great example of the kind of independence that you were asking about earlier, whereas uh, prior to 2021, the gaming inspector general sat inside of, of gaming itself it was moved so that it's under the umbrella of our office and operates like all of the other agencies authority and authorities over which we have jurisdiction. So we provide training to gaming employees across the state. We are on the ground at the racetracks, casinos, off-track betting, and elsewhere. And we are taking in complaints about online mobile sports wagering as well. We've seen a tremendous uptick in the complaints about fraud and corruption in the industry. We've trained the entirety of our staff to be able to uh, address and and investigate those kinds of complaints. And it's, um, I think, a tremendous change for the better that it is now um, within the offices of the inspector general and is uh, we're separate from sit apart from um, do not have in-house relationships with gaming itself. Mm. Yeah. Th- th- those are interesting relationships. You actually make me think of, we'll come back to gaming in a second, but you made me think of something I wanted to ask you about, which is um, the MTA has its own inspector general. Do you have a relationship with that office? We and, do. Yes. Okay. And, and what is that like? Are there ways in which, your office could or should take more of a particular interest in the MTA. I mean, this is obviously a massive authority. Again, going back to the contracting issue, um, you know, a lot of questions and and allegations and issues around um, uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. Let's just say generally uh, at the MTA and and questions around contracting and so forth. So, what's the relationship there? And are there ways that you've taken a closer look at at what's going on at the MTA? 
I have tremendous respect for the MTAIG and we work closely on matters where there um, might be jurisdictional overlap. We also are, um, we're sort of thought partners in the oversight community and we work together on, I think, elevating the oversight profession in general. So I'm really proud of the partnership that we have with them, but don't think that we need to be overstepping into the jurisdiction of the MTAIG. Mm -hmm. All right. Back to uh, back to gaming and casinos. Um, so this uh, around mobile sports wagering, which I said was was legalized not too long ago, and and uh, and has you know taken off in New York and and across the country and and world. Um, any patterns emerging there that that you've noticed of of issues or complaints around ways that people are trying to you know forgive the pun, game game the system um, on uh, online sports betting? Have the major companies involved been, you know, doing their due diligence? Um, how is that going? Because it is so new, uh, broadly speaking, and also in New York, especially. It's really too soon to identify any substantial patterns, but we are certainly tracking and looking at it. And as you know, we're going to put out our, our two-year report for the first two years in office next week. And so you might have to have me back next yeah. year for our annual report for me to reflect on that when we've had a little more time under our belt. Okay, great. And um, this this question of the new casino licenses coming to the downstate area, there's three licenses up for grab, the process is unfolding. Are you monitoring that process? Is that something where your office can take a proactive uh, approach to making sure that there's no abuses of the process as the licenses are given out. We saw this happen in the past in New York, where there were major issues around the issuance of these these casino licenses. Um, anything you're able to do during the process to to ensure its integrity? Wherever there are major um, major investments like this, we watch carefully to make sure that the appropriate regulations are being followed and that there's no funny business. Does that mean that you're requesting documents? Are you, do you have people sitting in on things? Is there anything you can tell us about sort of like your, your, your sort of tactics and strategies on this front? Or is it more of a passive? Uh, it is a uh, the cadence of, of any kind of oversight is a kind of ebb and flow, and it depends on what stage in a process something is in. So when something is in this sort of infancy and building, uh, it, it tends to be a little bit more passive. And then when actual contracting is happening and dollars are are um, changing hands, that tends to be when there is more um, more on the ground work on the part of investigators. Mm -hmm. Um, last few things, uh, and then, then I'll let you go. Um, just to come to a, a few things that sort of, um, when I have guests on, I very often will put something out on, on social media, just asking if people have specific questions. So let me throw a couple of things at you that came from people. Um, one thing was this issue related to leadership, um, of the Roosevelt Island operating corporation. Is this something that, um, has has been sort of un, under your purview? Are you looking at how um, that has been unfolding? There were questions around um, the the president and CEO of the Roosevelt Island Cor Operating Corporation being put on leave. Um, is that is that something under your under your watch? 
Equal to our commitment to transparency with the public is our commitment to due process and the confidentiality of investigations. So I never comment on uh, whether or not we have investigations ongoing unless and until there is some finding of wrongdoing, at which time we make the breadth of our findings known to the public. And that's true uh, categorically because we don't want to be in the business of public shaming or fueling suspicion before full and complete investigations have happened. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this issue that, that comes up a lot, and someone quickly uh, threw it at me when I asked about any questions for you, which was related to um, ghost cars, uh, faulty license plates, uh, parking placard abuse, just sort of this broad category. Maybe there's only pieces of this that that come under your purview or maybe very little of it or none. There's obviously the, the MTAs at play, the NYPD. I mean, mostly this is a New York City focused podcast. And, and you know, that's a lot of what we're talking about is stuff that happens in and around New York City here. Um, but, you know, you have the NYPD both in charge of enforcing some of these things and also, you know, very often being uh, some of the violators of the parking placard issues and things like that. You have, um, you know, obviously the state department of motor vehicles that's involved in some ways here. Is this an area broadly or any specifics under it that are, that are something you can look at, have looked at, are looking at? Well, as, uh, as the head of a statewide agency, I am really working on all of our sustainability efforts. So that's one area that touches on this. And we are trying to decrease our vehicle footprint. So we're decommissioning some of our fleet cars and where we have to replace them, we're replacing them with electric vehicles. So that's just a sort of general thought with respect to the vehicles in our control. Um, we have jurisdiction over the Department of Motor Vehicles, and so we do investigate wrongdoing amongst DMV employees, and um, and that can range from misuse of DMV technology to create false identification to uh, to misuse of, of vehicles, et cetera. In terms of straight up placard abuse in New York City, uh, that's a more local problem that that isn't ours, except when I find myself uh, find myself with nowhere to park, but I certainly um, would encourage people to ride public transportation whenever possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm encouraging all New Yorkers to think about sustainability as a top priority. Let me come back to a final, a final couple of broad things. Um, well, you just hit on, you just hit on one thing. I wanted to ask you this too. Are there, um, are there areas that come up a lot for you that you don't have jurisdiction purview over that you, that you, wish you did or that you should or the you know the OI the, the state inspector general offices should have some sort of expanded jurisdiction other things that come across your desk often that you're finding yourself either having nothing that you can really do or they're all referrals elsewhere but they probably should be under your purview well an area that I think will be of interest to you as a former teacher is that we don't have jurisdiction over the State Department of Education. And uh, as a result, when the announcement was recently made that the state is going to be at long last moving towards a science of reading based approach to literacy across the state over the next couple of years, um, I had observed during my visits both to the 44 state prisons and to the secure juvenile facilities around the state that there are similarly not consistent literacy curricula in the prisons and juvenile facilities. And so, although I don't have jurisdiction over the State Department of Ed, uh, we decided based on our interviews with 
folks who are under our jurisdiction and the docs uh, community and the OCFS community that it was appropriate for us to write a letter to the Department of Ed calling for them to take into account the needs of incarcerated learners in their work um, in creating a task force that is addressing dyslexia and dysgraphia that is in formation now and that is ultimately going to be charged with um, the resources and the recommendations related to literacy across the state. So while it's not an area that we have jurisdiction, it is an area that I feel very strongly as both a former a teacher in prison and the parent of a brilliant dyslexic child that we need to be very vigilant to those vulnerable populations who might not necessarily be on the radar of the larger conversation around the issue. Very interesting. Um, is there any reason that the state education department couldn't in some way be added to uh, being under your jurisdiction? The reason that they aren't is because the commissioner is not appointed by the governor. So the notion is that our office is responsible for the agencies in which the heads are gubernatorial appointments, mm -hmm. um, whereas the commissioner of state ed is appointed by the Board of Regents. Got it. Um, I heard you say in, a, in another interview that, that some of um, you know, sort of what you're looking at in terms of government, how government is working and not working and challenges um, relates to there being a lot of understaffing in state agencies. Can you say a little bit about what you've noticed there? I mean, obviously, government employment has been a big issue since COVID. Um, lots of people leaving the public sector to go to the private sector where there's more workplace flexibility. Obviously, there's very often higher salaries for many people in the private sector. Um, New York City is, has been having huge challenges with personnel, though, of course, there's always discussions around, you know, workplace policies and how much that's impacting things. Um, is it is it that understaffed state agencies are, um, how much is there a real risk of both underperformance and then also because resources are stretched thinner, inclination towards some sort of abuse. Is that something that we've seen or is it more of a something to watch out for? It's highly variable depending on the needs of a particular agency. Obviously, you need people to to drive snowplows. You need uh, physical bodies to uh, oversee physical facilities and, and state parks and, and all of those sorts of things. So um, in some, yes, there is just a an actual lack of of people to do jobs. Um, but you're right that there, um, in some places, may be, uh, it may be time for a sort of reassessment of how people's time is allocated um, across different, different areas of various agencies' work. So that's something that we do look at with agencies. Um, but as a general matter, um, one of the best things about this job has been getting to see the hardworking state employees 
who are doing their very best for New Yorkers every day with limited resources. Um, but I'll give you a, an example again in the Department of Corrections that uh, across the state, I heard complaints from incarcerated people and corrections officers alike complaining about understaffing. And when we dug in on that, it was uh, not just a hiring challenge, which certainly the Department of Corrections is having, but also um, really egregious uh, abuse of the workers' compensation system. And at some facilities, there are up to 40% of people out on workers' comp at any given day. That is not as a result of um, by and large of contact with an incarcerated person, which is the reason ostensibly that that contract uh, provides such a generous benefit to corrections officers as compared to people in other professions. So that is an area that's of great concern to me as wearing my um, my workers' compensation fraud inspector general hat and an area that uh, should certainly be scrutinized. And we've seen we've seen some of those similar issues in New York City related right. to to correction officers and and uh, and going to work. And Mayor Bill de Blasio had sued at one point and then dropped the suit. And there's been some improvement in those attendance numbers. But um, all right, as we say goodbye, anything we didn't touch on that you want to just give a, a moment to? I try to try to get to a lot here, but is there anything we didn't touch on that's important to get to? Uh, sort of frequently asked. Uh, issues, you know, questions that come up from the public or from state employees, that's something that you want to, you know, give a mention to or anything that we didn't really touch on that you want to take a moment on. It's a beautiful day here in New York City, but I'm really fortunate to have a statewide presence and to have the opportunity to travel the whole state. I want New Yorkers to know that we are here to receive their complaints of fraud, corruption, and abuse in state executive agencies and authorities. And if you have a question about whether or not it's under our jurisdiction, call us and we will help you whether it is or not. We can be reached at 1-800-DO-RIGHT. And I would be thrilled if folks would follow us on social media at New York State IG, where you can learn more about our ongoing work to protect the most vulnerable New Yorkers and to ensure integrity in New York State government. Thank you so much for having me on, Ben. Sure. Lucy Lang is the New York State Inspector General. Thanks for that uh, final word there to make sure people know where they can reach you. And uh, thanks for taking all this time to talk about your office's work. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you.